Hello, my name is Rachel King and I'm the Literary Director of the Word Christchurch Writers and Readers Festival. I'm pleased to introduce this 2016 Word Christchurch Festival podcast, Ask a Mortician with Caitlin Doty, proudly presented by Kate Sylvester. In this session, we welcome Caitlin Doty, author, mortician, death-positive advocate and presenter of the smart, funny and informative Ask a Mortician web series. According to The Guardian, Doty's memoir, Smoke Gets in Your Eyes and Other Lessons from the Crematorium, which charts her early years in the funeral business, is a hilarious, poignant and impassioned plea to revolutionise our attitudes to death. Doty explodes taboos with wit, wisdom and insight, and tells it straight in matters of death and dying, with Christchurch coroner Marcus Elliott. Caitlin, as you know, is a mortician based in Los Angeles, but a great deal more than that. As, as examples, she hosts the Ask a Mortician web series, which uh, you can find on YouTube and is up to about 60 uh, videos over about four years. Episode one had 250,000 views, but I've checked and Caitlin confirms the most viewed was the episode on the fate of hip, knee and breast implants at 336,000 views. <laughs> Caitlin's also covered necrophilia, liquefying bodies, corpse poo, the worst way to die is the funeral industry of pyramid scheme, <laughs> human taxidermy, uh, and are those really my mother's ashes? Caitlin uh, has also written the book, which you'll find out the front, Smoke Gets in Your Eyes and Other Lessons from the Crematorium, and this is really a, um, really a great book. It's, it's sort of underselling it to describe it as uh, Kate's, Caitlin's account of her experiences as a mortician. It's a lot more than that. Not only does she talk to us about her journey through the world of death, but she incorporates historical and philosophical references uh, to death and the treatment of dead bodies, which had a whole new uh, complexity and meaning uh, to, to, to the book. And it's written in a, in a wonderful uh, entertaining and very distinctive and at times very funny voice. And what emerges is that it's a book uh, not just about uh, the process, but about how we think about death and how we could think about death. And as an example, uh, those of you who were there on Friday night uh, would have heard Kim Hill read the first sentence from the book, which is, a girl always remembers the first corpse she shaves which captures, to some extent, the way uh, Caitlin approaches the subject. But the last sentence of the book is, the silence of death of the cemetery was no punishment, but a reward for a life well lived. And what you'll find if you read the book is that it's a book about death, but it's more about life. Uh, Caitlin's also founded uh, a group called The Order of the Good Death, which I may uh, ask her about if we have a chance. So please welcome Caitlin Doherty. Thank you for having me, by the way. I've had such a wonderful time in Christchurch so far, and people have been apologizing for the rain, but I live in Los Angeles, where we're on year five of our devastating drought. So to go outside and have it be raining is like, ah, it's wonderful. I've had a great time. Thank you. And you're now heading off for a week around the South Island, are you? I am, yes. I'm going on the Transalpine tomorrow. And then I'm going to Akaroa, and I hope to spend even more time possibly writing a new book. 
Well, not the whole book. I'm very slow, but some writing. Right, okay. Well, I might ask you about that too if we get time. I'm conscious that there will be, uh, I imagine, lots of questions, so we'll leave some time for that. But I thought by, by beginning, uh, you talked about in the book your time at what you call Westwind Cremation and Burial, which is a fictional name of an actual place. And that's, that's in San Francisco. And perhaps you could just describe for us what your typical day as a mortician would have been. Sure, Tip typical day at the old crematory. Um, so I began to work at a crematory when I was, I believe, 22 or 23 years old. I had graduated from college. My degree was medieval history, uh, which I think actually very well prepared me for my career in death. And I, I kind of tricked them into hiring me. I didn't trick them, but uh, they hired a young girl to do this very physical job. And I would get in every morning and we would kind of just see who was on deck for the day, who was, who was up to be cremated that day, who had been filed appropriately. And we'd fire up, we had two large cremation machines called retorts, and they would get up to, I looked up this conversion, 850 degrees Celsius, and we'd put the bodies in. But it wasn't, I was the crematory operator, which means my whole day was just cremating the bodies, but I also met with families, I also drove around town picking up corpses from upstairs and under, you know, under strange places and hither and thither. And so I really, I really did it all. And that's kind of the funeral director's condition is in some places where really big cities, you can have very specified jobs as a funeral director. You're just an embalmer or you just pick up bodies or you just cremate. But I was actually able to do it all, which made me set me up for the next nine years that I've been in the industry so far. In your book, you talk a bit about the, um, what led you, I suppose, to taking on this career. And you describe your relationship with death as complicated, and you describe yourself, I think, as functionally morbid. <laughs> so can you talk to us a bit about your relationship with death and how that led to you doing what you, what you do? Sure, my relationship with death, the best relationship of my life. Um, We've had ups, we've had downs, but who doesn't? Um, yeah, I, I saw a death when I, was, when I was very young. I saw a small child fall from a second story balcony um, to the ground, to what I, what I assume was her death. It looked pretty bad to my eight-year-old eyes. And it was devastating for me as a young child because in my house, we didn't really talk about it that much. It, it was kind of just assumed that I was okay, that I saw this horrific thing and you know, maybe had a cry, and that's, that's fine, she's good. Um, but what actually ended up happening was death, the specter of it just began to haunt me. And I feared it every day, I feared it happening to my family, I feared it happening to me. And I will say that as wonderful as my parents were, that dialogue wasn't open. I didn't have a support system to, to discuss these things. And a lot of the work that I do now is a way to make up for that, in a way, is to have all of these conversations because when I, when I talk to children about death, actually, I did an event in Australia and there was a young boy and he raised his hand right away and he said, I, first, first my question is, um, how long does it take your eyeballs to decompose? <laughs> Two part question. Second part, 
will my cat eat my eyeballs? <laughs> Which, to me, I was like, first of all, two excellent questions. <laughs> Second, kids are so curious about death. Their little minds are so open, they're so morbid themselves. For those of you who have children, you know that they're just as morbid as, as any adult. But we kind of tell them that's not okay. We tell them those questions are inappropriate or, or morbid or weird. And so when they grow up and have to deal with actual death, they're now meant to feel like any questions they have about it are dirty or weird or wrong. And if we did a better job starting early on with our children, saying no question is really off limits, we can have open, honest discussions about any topic, even if it's your cat eating your eyeballs, which, by the way, yes, if you were wondering, your cat will totally eat your eyeballs if you're not found in enough time. Dogs, less likely. Dogs are much more loyal. Cats, straight in, straight in. Two hours after you die, they're going for the eyeballs. Not scientific fact. Um, but uh, that's kind of a rambling answer to your question. But no, no, well, what, uh, what I'm trying to get across is that I had a bad relationship with death when I was a child, and by having these public dialogues about death, I hope to spare some other people that fate. And I'll look at my cat in a different way. Yeah, you should. <laughs> so so when, you, when you went into this, uh, this environment at West Wind, uh, what was your initial impression of it? I was surprised. I had always thought of funeral homes as like grandma's 1960s living room with uh, couches and a vague rose smell and kind of musty and big heavy curtains. And this crematory was an industrial environment. It was really industrial. It was a big warehouse. I felt lucky that there was a skylight, so at least some sun came in. Um, but it was, it was dirty, and it was industrial. And I think what a lot of people don't know is that cremation and cremation machines are not really highly advanced. There hasn't been a lot of real innovation in the cremation machinery in the past 40 years or so. They're very steam-age technology. It's big industrial machines that use natural gas to power them, uh, big ovens. So uh, it's, it's an intense environment, a dirty one, and it's not, it's not a, I had a more a vision of me kind of relaxing and thinking about death and just really pondering life and death and these big issues. I wasn't, I was scraping bones out of an oven and working hard. Mm. But, but your, your work also involved going out uh, to houses where people had died and bringing the body back, and, and that's, how did you find that side of things and dealing with bereaved families? That's interesting, because when you go to either hospitals or homes to pick people up, that's right after a death has occurred. So things are very fresh. And I'm sure as a coroner you get this as well, dealing with families sometimes at the absolute worst part. And it's hard because you don't know what's better. Is it better to go and there's a family there and you have to maybe awkwardly deal with some familial politics, or is it harder to go to some place where a woman has fallen and died and there's just no one? So you're picking up her body and wrapping it up, but she's been there for a day, and the only reason they called us is because she had our number for some reason on her fridge, so they know to call us, but other than that, there's no, no family at all. So going into people's homes is a really bizarre, intimate thing. 
because you can see their lives unfold and, and sometimes the bodies would be beautiful and laid out and have flowers all around them and sometimes they'd be on the floor in a mm. hoarded house with roaches crawling around and you get the call and you never know <laughs> what you're gonna get when you go into a home and you really have to be prepared for anything. Mm. I'm, I'm a relatively new coroner but one thing that struck me was, uh, was those cases where, as you say, the body was found, but in some cases after many weeks uh, of, yeah. of no contact and to, to the point where the body would be even mummified. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, we see the photographs and the state of the body and the state of the uh, environment tells a story about their life. Yeah, and, and so I will say that we can make the, make the jokes about if they don't find you, your cat's gonna eat you. Um, and that's, those actually, I mean, they're funny, but there is the darker side to that, as there is, I think, with every part of death. Death is comedy and tragedy at the same time. And so what we're talking about now is the really tragic part of so many people, especially now, who can, can die un, unknown and without being able to find family. And the way that it works in the Los Angeles coroner system is that if you die without family, what they do is they take the coroner picks you up, takes you to this big fridge at the edge of town, which quite literally has hundreds of unclaimed bodies in it. And they'll keep you there for a period of time, they'll cremate you, and once a year they dig a big pit in, out in East Los Angeles and they dump, I think, 1,500 sets, usually, of cremated remains into the hole. And that's your mass grave right in the middle of Los Angeles. And what's always so stunning to me is that it's Los Angeles, so you have these celebrity funerals at big fancy cemeteries that cost $200,000. Um, and in you know, New Zealand, that's like $250,000. Uh, and then you have all of these people who, who go completely unsung and uncelebrated in their death, and it's a really sharp contrast. Mm. Well, one of the really wonderful parts about the book is that uh, you describe some of the bodies that you were dealing with, but in a very human way and looking beyond just the fact that it's a part of, part of your, your job. Would you like to tell us about one that... Sure, of course. Tell us about your favorite corpse, Caitlin. Um, there have been so many. Um, I, re I really do see each body as a jumping off point to, to, and you were actually saying that we had lunch before this, which was a very death geeky lunch. Um, we were looking up like laws on, on his iPad the furiously. Burial Information Act and... Yeah. Um, and uh, one thing you were saying is that each death for you sort of starts off an adventure. Is that right? Or starts off a, an adventure of learning about all these other different facets. So death is not just death. Death encompasses every part of, of what we do. Um, so as far as greatest hits of corpses through my career, um, well, I guess, I guess in, in the book, um, I talk about the first corpse that I ever, that I ever really saw um, and that was when my boss was very, my boss was a gruff man, my very first boss at the crematory. And he put me in a room with a dead body and just said, all right, he needs a shave, good luck, and walked out. And I, my heart just dropped and I was like, ah, because it was, I was so sure that I was gonna mess it up. And so I got my little shaving cream and my pink plastic razor 
and just put it on his face. I had never shaved a man's face before. I was completely unqualified to do this. Putting on the shaving cream, probably way too much. And then just like, hoping to God that skin didn't just come off the face because I didn't know how does dead skin work. I, I'm not trained in this. Um, and I did it and, it and it was fine. But there's something about how far, and I think that was really my first introduction to what my advocacy is now, which is how are we so distant from the dead body? And so death has become so professionalized that we're so kept away from the dead body that being around a corpse can cause that kind of confusion and terror and am I gonna break it? Like, no, it's, it's like a living person except easier to handle. You know, like, you can't really mess it up, they're dead. Um, but we have such a weird, uncanny valley, creeped out relationship with the dead body anymore that we, we almost can't have that kind of connection anymore. And that's one of the main things that me and other advocates like me are seeking to rebuild. Mm. That's been my experience too from the coronial point of view that uh, the, there's a group of people in society who are dealing with the dead, uh, but the body is taken perhaps from the place of death to, to a funeral home or to a mortuary. Uh, so very quickly it's taken out of the, the hands of the, of the family. Yeah, and, and what some people miss about that, which I always try and emphasize, is that the idea of a family taking care of the dead body and doing everything themselves and then taking the body to the cemetery, a hundred years ago, that was everybody. And um, I was able to go with the Word Festival to um, an, an iwi, a Maori iwi today, or not today, a couple days ago, and speak with some of the, the older people there, and they were telling me about their death traditions, because I asked immediately, of course. And uh, what they talked about was the three days where they have the body there, and it's these three days of darkness, and then they can move back into the light. And during those three days, the body is present, people are coming in and out, there's food, there's activities, they're really present with the death. And sometimes when you tell that, something like that to Westerners, they think, oh, what a, you know, like what a quirky, what a quirky concept, or like what a special weird death ritual in a faraway land. That was, that was everybody. That's exactly what everybody did in each Western country throughout the 1700s, 1800s, 1900s, and it was only in the 20th century that it became a professionalized class of death workers that came and took the body away immediately and put it behind closed doors. That's a really recent development. So we can argue about whether or not that's the best way to handle the dead body and to handle death, but to act like that's how it's always been done is just not true. Mm. You talk about uh, death anxiety and death phobia. Is that, a, is that a product of what you're, or a symptom of what you're talking about? And I think so, yeah. Why, why, why is this a part of Western society? Yeah, I mean, if I, if I told you I was gonna roll in a corpse right now and put it in front of you and you all had to come up and touch it and hang out with it, probably most of you would be like, I don't know, you know, I'm not so sure about that. But if you had grown up in a home where you had had 12 wakes by the time you were 20, and, you know, and part of that reality, of course, is that people were dying much younger in, in previous generations. Mm -hmm. So we're at a point now where not only is 
the death services professionalized, but the dying process is, of course, professionalized as well. People are living much longer, their diseases go on much longer. You know, in 1900, you got influenza and you were just dead. You got consumption and you were dead. It was, it was immediate, you could be young, you didn't have these long extended periods to watch your loved ones die. That was just really rare. So we're in, I think it can't be overstated what a completely different world we're in now as far as how we die and how our dead bodies are taken care of. Mm. To, to what extent was that driven by um, economics, or business interests? As far as the death industry is concerned, as far as the funeral industry is concerned, I would say 99% was, was driven by death and economic interests because what you had is in the, so originally embalming um, was an American thing, you're welcome, uh, from, my, from my small nation to yours. Uh, what it was, was something that was used in our, our American Civil War to keep bodies preserved because it was the North fighting the South and the Northern soldiers would go down and they'd die in the South and there'd be no way to get their bodies back up to the North. And so these gentlemen who called themselves embalmers would follow battle to battle and set up little tents and use slogans like, embalmers, our bodies never turn black. Um, great. And sometimes they'd take unclaimed soldiers and embalm them within an inch of their lives and prop them up outside the tents as like advertisements, like check out how preserved these bodies are. We can do the same for your family. Um, and so people would, would use, and I mean, there was, a, there was a service there. There was a real service because people in, in that time really valued seeing the dead body. It was incredibly important to see it, and something I respect, and so they wanted him back. So that's how it started. But then after the Civil War, embalming wasn't really necessary anymore. They, they weren't having to transport bodies across the country. It wasn't necessary, but there was this class of men who decided they wanted to keep embalming going. And so what it's been is really an extended campaign of making embalming a thing. And at first people didn't want it at all. The average person was like, oh, I don't know about this quackery, this, you know, this weirdo guy who wants to put chemicals in my mom's dead body, that's so weird to me. But they worked really hard to unionize, to make themselves professional, to have certain standards. There were men who went around, and really it was the embalming chemical companies that went around and trained people to be embalmers so then they could sell the chemicals, and it, it, that's how it really started. And I know embalming was in the US all throughout the 20th century, and I know that it's really come to New Zealand in a big way as well, and I believe actually New Zealand, other than the US, it embalms most. Um, so, <laughs> you're welcome for that as well. <laughs> These great legacies we have gifted to you. Um, but yeah, so that's how it started, and, and then they began to sell caskets. The casket seller just used to be the guy down the road who also made cabinets, and also, you know, there's great signs from the 19th century that are funeral director, casket sales, teeth puller, lamp lighter, cabinet maker, like it was just a dude who did like 14 different things. 
And then it became, oh, well, now you have to have caskets sold at the funeral home, and you have to be an embalmer, and you have to embalm the body, and it's certain qualifications you have to have to embalm the body, and then you put the embalmed body in the expensive casket, and then you have a hearse that you have to rent, and then you have to have the body made up, and you have to have these certain flowers, and you have to have this certain mass, and all of these are under the guise of these professional services of the funeral director. So it just got bigger and bigger and bigger, and then now you have it to the point where they don't want to give those things up. It's their industry, it's the way things are run, and they don't want somebody to tell them that it could be done differently or cheaper or in a better, perhaps, way. Is it your experience that people un understand or what, what is meant by embalming when it's presented as part of the That's a good package? question. By a show of hands, how many of you feel like you have a really good handle on the embalming process and what happens? That's a fair, I mean, you know, obviously a crowd that would come to this would be more likely <laughs> to know a bit, but that's still not, still not very many. Um, so I, yeah, you're right, I should, I should explain. So embalming, um, short answer is it's the chemical preservation of the corpse, of the dead body. Um, what that actually means is what will happen is there's an artery and a vein that runs through this part of your neck, and the vein will be used to drain blood out of your circulatory system, and the artery will be used to push chemicals through the circulatory system. And those chemicals are, primary one would be formaldehyde, which you've probably heard of, which is a known carcinogen, which doesn't matter to the dead body, um, but does matter to the embalmer and to potential groundwater leaks. Um, and it's pumped through the circulatory system, and the other thing that's done is there's a long, skinny instrument called the trocar, which kind of looks like a lightsaber with a point at the end, and it's pushed into the belly button area, and it sucks out the fluid in your main body cavity, and then it reverses, and more of a stronger version of the formaldehyde and chemicals are put into the body cavity. And the point of this is to preserve the body. Originally, as I said, the point was to preserve the body for a long period of time, um, and I still think it's not a bad idea if you planned on, you know, sending the body to, you know, Spain or something, and it needs to be okay for a long time, but it became that everybody was involved no matter what. What are the alternatives? Uh, the alter I think the best alternative is not embalming. Right. Honestly, like, you, don't, you don't need it. And um, then this is obviously my, my fundal, fundamental disagreement with most other funeral directors, is that I believe that, as I told you, the dead body was kept in the home with no problem for you know, hundreds if not thousands of years of human history why do we now need this, this chemical procedure? And um, I think that the dead body is beautiful as it is. Again, if I brought the corpse out in front, you might disagree with me, but it's not your mom. It's not your dad. It's not your partner. And when it's the, a body that has just died and you're there with it, I've never had anybody say, I sat with my mom for a couple of hours after she died, and oh, I'm so, oh, I'm so grossed out, I'm so sad that I did it. Nobody says that. It's always a moving experience, difficult, beautiful, filled with, filled with pain and love and all these different emotions. That's almost the universal reaction to it. 
Whereas an embalmed body, which after it's embalmed will often have really heavy makeup put on it and a suit or something put on it, I often get people saying, my mom looked like a completely different person or it looks like she was made of wax or I hardly even recognized her. And I get that reaction again and again. And you know, you wanna, you wanna tell people in the industry, I don't think people really like this that much. Like, you know, what, are, what feedback are you getting? Because I, people tell me all the time that embalming just didn't really mean a lot to them, and they, but they assumed because the funeral director basically told them point blank that they had to do it, that it was necessary, or the only legal option, or the only thing for their safety. Hmm. I mean, I think you make the point in the, in the book and perhaps in some of the sessions that what you're advocating though almost puts um, the funeral director in a position of potentially being not profitable. Mm -hmm. Because if you take embalming away, you take the caskets away and so on. Yeah. I'm fine with that. Well, <laughs> yeah. well I think you're, you're, you're quite open about that, aren't you? But yeah. um, how do you get on with your colleagues at conferences? <laughs> well, <laughs> it's a great question. You stand in the corner with, um, yeah. with a Nobody drink. Nobody talks to me. I'm like, hi guys, I'm here. Um, well, <laughs> well um, so I actually went to a funeral director's conference in the great state of Indiana, in the middle of the country, last year, and uh, what happened was pretty much what I expected, which is I had a lot of young people coming up who are new funeral directors or who are in mortuary school saying, hey, Caitlin, oh my God, you're here. I love what you do. I want to do some of the same things. That's great. Um, I had some, some older people say, I don't agree with everything you do, but I can see some merit in it. Um, and then I had a, a lot of people, like older men in suits, just kind of giving me the side eye, you know, giving me the like, oh right, that, that little girl. Um, which I'm not so little anymore, but um, really, I mean, I think where I've really gotten the blowback is more online because, you know, surprise, surprise, people can say whatever they want online. Um, and uh, my favorite, and I actually just discussed this recently, but my favorite thing is the argument that I'm a starlet or I'm in this for the fame and the notoriety. And Are my, you? Uh, well, you know, just as a pro tip for anyone in the audience considering this, if you're looking for fame, death education <laughs> is not the route that I would take. <laughs> Like, if you know, if you think your your course to fame is graphically describing the embalming process um, to crowds of people, um, although you all are here, hello, thank you, thank you for coming. Um, I, it's, it's a weird balance because on one hand, I think people are fascinated about, by death and they're they're uncomfortable with not knowing the facts um, because facts are liberating and facts can can help us really face death in a way that everything being hidden can't. Um, but yeah, it's certainly not, uh, certainly not in it for the fame. And the reason that I do think that they say that is that there are a lot of funeral directors who, I say all the time, if there's a funeral director who wants to debate me, like I would love it if you were a traditional funeral director or a conventional funeral director and we were doing like a point counterpoint, you know, mm. no, God damn it, no, I think this, I think that'd be great, that would be so much fun. But they don't want to do that because a lot of the things that the funeral industry are built on are on pretty shaky ground. 
and pretty shaky science and pretty shaky reasoning, and I have a lot to back up what I say, and they don't want to fight me on those grounds as far as like keeping a body at home is safe and legal, funerals are maybe too expensive, there are other options, and I can argue that, and they can't really argue back on mm. those facts. They can argue for their services, and they're welcome to do that, but they can't argue that what I'm saying and advocating for is true. Mm. We've got lots to cover, and we're not going to get through it all because we need some time for questions. So I am picking and choosing, but I want to ask you about uh, death and privacy mm. because, again, in my experience uh, as a lawyer, there's a lot of laws around human rights and privacy rights and that sorts of thing. But at the point of death, uh, those rights seem to, legally at least, and probably practically almost fall away. Yeah, when I, when I was writing the book, there are some people in it, who, obviously there are people in it who are dead. <laughs> it's a book about corpses. But um, people who, are, who were living characters and then died, I could say anything I want about them because you can't slander the dead. Mm. And I believe it's the same way mm. in, in New Zealand. Well, you but, can, but they, they can't sue you. Yeah, exactly. You can, <laughs> but they can't sue you. Can't sue you. <laughs> you know, yeah. so I could, I could say that, you know, uh, like if my father was dead, I could say that he used to dress up in a black bodysuit. Well, but he's still alive, so you can't say that. Yeah, he's still alive. I can't say that. I think my dad, um, my dad doesn't even know how to use a computer, so I don't think he's going to download a podcast from New Zealand radio. Well, let's um, hope not. Let's hope not, yeah. Um, but I couldn't say anything about him because he's he's still alive, but I could say whatever I wanted about him when he's dead. Mm. Um, but as far, yeah, I agree. It's, it's strange, the idea of, of post-mortem privacy and what we allow and, and mm. don't allow. Well, well, part of what you're advocating is that there'll be an opportunity to wash the body, mm -hmm. uh, family being very close to the body, handing the body, and, and so on, and things which, if alive, uh, would be quite private. <laughs> how, how, how does one reconcile the... Yes. <laughs> oh, the, oh, that's a really good point. Yeah. Um, well, you know, when, when somebody dies, as I said, nowadays people's deaths are prolonged for the most part, aren't they? People die over... Of course there are short, tragic deaths, as you know, but for the most part they're, they're over a longer period of time. And so if you have someone who's dying under hospice care or under palliative care in your home, and they're your mother, they're your partner, they're your child, you at that point will be used to caring for them. You know, them, them pooping or them puking a little bit or there being some sort of secretions or having to wash or clean them, at that point is not gonna be anything new to you. Mm. And even if it is new to you, there's just something, I have, a, I have a good friend who also works in the same movement that I do. She's not a funeral director. She doesn't actually spend that much time around dead bodies. And she had her brother-in-law die very young, totally unexpectedly. And they had a very long wake for him that lasted several days and they didn't have him embalmed. And what she said was that on the third or fourth day, it started, it started to smell a little bit. It was warm and he kind of started to smell. There was a little bit of hint of decomposition. And I'll never forget what she said to me, which is, when it's someone you love, decomposition doesn't matter. Which, in the moment, I was like, that's so true. There are things that I do as a funeral director on a daily basis, which are, oh, the corpse, you know, let out some feces, or, you know, there's some bl matted blood in their hair, and 
I'm used to it, but it's still sometimes it's a little like, okay, here we go, cleaning the corpse. But if it was my mother, or it was my partner, or it was my father, everything would be different. There would be a solemnity, there would be an almost sacred quality to it, a sacred quality to doing this act. And so, yes, it's, it's weird if you've you know, never bathed your mother's body to do it, but I think that things really do change when someone is dead and, and it's someone you loved. Well, you talk in the book about the art of dying. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us what you mean by that? I guess, so again, I was a medieval history major, and in the Middle Ages, there was something called the Ars Moriendi, which was the art of dying. And it were these, these were manuals that taught you how to die. And of course, because of the period, they were mostly like, repent, you know, was the main uh, advice that they gave. Um, but I think that we're really due for a, a modern version of that. And for each person, sometimes, I use the term the good death a lot. And sometimes people take issue with that because they say, but what if, I, what if I don't have a good death? I'm gonna feel bad. I'm gonna feel bad about myself. And what I respond, respond to that is, if you don't do any planning, if you don't talk about this, if you don't figure out what you want and have the conversation with your family, there is no way you're gonna have a good death. In the system we have now, the good death isn't handed to you. No medical professional, no funeral professional is gonna hand you the good death on a silver platter. It's just not gonna happen. So you as a family and the people that love you have to really figure out how you want to die, how much pain you're willing to be in, how much what you want done with your body, how, if, what things have to be said, what's in order. And in that, it's never gonna be, death is never gonna be great, but it's a chance, to, it's, a, it's a shot. You have a shot if you do those things. So, um, again, it comes through in the book that you're advocating for people to, to think about these things mm -hmm. rather than just to push them aside and ignore them until it's absolutely essential, which is when, when someone dies and they have to deal with it. So yeah. I suppose it ties back into the previous point. You're saying in the case of where uh, you're contemplating washing a person's body, you will have talked about that with them. Mm -hmm. uh, and Yeah, well, <laughs> I, I say that there's never any surprise home funerals. So you never, it's not like someone said, well, you know, my dad's been dying and he's died now. You know what, we're just gonna keep him for three days and it's gonna be great. Most people need to, because it's so transgressive in our current system, um, of course, again, 100 years ago, that's what they would have done, but now I think people really do need training. And what, what I've found so far, in, so I opened a funeral home nine months ago in Los Angeles. It's the only nonprofit funeral home in Los Angeles, which we're proud of, um, and had to fight to get approved, um, is that we have said that we offer exactly what I've been talking about. We'll come to your house and help you prepare the body at home. And we haven't done that at all yet, because when you tell people in advance, describe how to do it, say that it's safe, say that it's legal, talk them through it, they'll just do it themselves. And that's what's been so powerful to me because it sort of proves the thesis that there's something in us that has that, that core and that center that is not afraid of the dead body and that can step up and that can do that if they want to. Mm. Um, and so that's been, I think, the most rewarding part is the, the home funerals I haven't gone to and I haven't mm. showed up at because it turns out they didn't need a professional at all. Right. Mm. What did I, and this is something that I think about a lot 
which is there are a lot of funeral homes that, even big ones in Los Angeles that I have friends that work at, and the families have been saying more and more, I wanna, I wanna come in and I wanna you know, help prepare mom, to, not the whole thing, I just wanna put on the lipstick that she loves, or I wanna fix her hair the way that she always did it, or she has this scarf and I know how she wore it and I wanna put it on. And the funeral homes will say no. They'll say either you do it all yourself or we do it, all our, we do it on our end because we're the professionals. And my opinion is if your professionalism rests on your ability to put on lipstick on a body, then what, it, like, what is that? What is that? Where does that come from? If you're, if you're holding on to this idea that you're the only one qualified enough to brush someone's hair, you know, that's no professional at all. A professional is somebody who can navigate the relationship with the living and the dead and create the most beautiful experience possible and the most healing for the grief. It's not the person who can, is the only person qualified mm. to put on mom's scarf. Like, that's ridiculous. Sorry, that makes me mad. It's good. We're <laughs> getting hot up here. <laughs> well, we'll take some questions in a moment, but can you just give us a quick thumbnail sketch of some of the alternatives to burial and cremation? Oh, sure. Um, so the way that burial and cremation are set up now, um, neither one of them is particularly that great for the environment. Um, as I said, more, the more traditional burial, you're putting the formaldehyde in your body, you're putting big metal caskets in the ground, big wooden caskets in the ground, vaults around that. Not particularly great. Cremation, wasting a lot of natural gas, there are emissions, there's mercury that goes into the environment. Neither one of them is the best if you are someone who's ecologically minded in your life. So there are a couple things that I am really excited about. Um, and people will post them on my Facebook if there's an article and say, have you seen this? And I'm like, yeah, there's like 10 of us who do this. I, I promise I've seen this. Um, one is a woman who's in Seattle, in Washington, who's trying to find a way to compost dead bodies. And I've actually, for the new book I'm working on, I've been spending time at a body farm, which is a, for those of you who know, it's a, a place where they test human decomposition. So people donate their bodies kind of like to a medical school and they lay them out for forensics testing and see how people decompose at different rates depending on different situations. And they were able to set up a thing where she's testing composting on bodies. And I was there to see it. And it's, it's really quite a beautiful process because if you get the body in high heat enough under this thing, it will just turn to soil in actually very quickly, in something like six to eight weeks. It's a really quick process and they're working towards having a central place that doesn't actually replace burial, but replaces cremation, because you'd be able to have the compost at the end and use it for your own garden, and you know, mom could go under the tree. And uh, another option is something called alkaline hydrolysis, or aquamation, and it's really high heat water and lye, and it flash decomposes the body down to something that's actually very similar, ash-like, to a cremation but is water instead of fire, and uh, is better on balance for the environment. And a lot of people just like the idea of water better than fire, depending on who you are. Um, and then the last thing that I'm really excited about is something called conservation burial. And at a conservation burial ground, most people when they talk about burial, they say, oh, you know, I wanna be buried, but I don't wanna waste all that land. You know, it just seems excessive and wasteful to me. But in conservation burial, 
It's endangered land that when you plant a couple corpses in the ground, they can't develop on it. They can't touch it. So I say that it's the equivalent of chaining yourself to a tree post-mortem <laughs> and saying like, hell no, I won't go. Um, and you, say, you save that land. You get that, you get that land into perpetuity and it's this beautiful, you know, endangered land with wildlife and trees and, and some of the ones that I've been to have just been some of the most beautiful land in the world and having dead bodies there, I always think adds like a gravitas to it as well. Um, so those are the three things that I'm hoping to see really take off in the coming years. Thank you. Now, are there any questions? I have more, but um, yes, now this gentleman down here. They don't have to be serious row, questions either. They can be ridiculous. Hi, thank you Hi. so much for coming Hi. over. Um, I'm curious, you probably hear this all the time, um, but maybe not. I'm just wondering what effect this work has had on your perception of any kind of afterlife. Oh, that's a great question. Um, so the question was what, uh, how this has shifted my perception of the afterlife. Um, you know, I think if anything, it's, it's made my perception of a lack of afterlife much stronger. Um, because any time that you spend a lot of time around death, you figure out what you feel about everything regarding death. And for me, um, I, I remember I was at a, my mom was in town uh, my family's from Hawaii. I was born and raised in Hawaii, and she was in town for a conference. And there was a woman there, and she was a very religious woman. And she said, "You know, you know, you, of course you believe in, in God, honey." And I said, "No, you know, unfortunately, that's I, I, I wouldn't say that I do, or I'm, I'm not quite sure." And she said, "Well, I do know that because of the work you do, helping people with death, when you die, all the people you've helped." will be waiting there for you to welcome you into heaven. And what I didn't tell her was like, all the corpses I worked on are gonna be waiting for me? That sounds horrifying. Um, and as an introvert, I don't wanna talk to all of them. Like, no. That, um, so my, and people, you know, that's her vision of the beautiful death and the beautiful transition to an afterlife. And I wanna protect that and I respect her for that. Um, but in my personal opinion, I see it as your brain shuts down and people who've had near-death experiences describe going toward the light. I think that's your brain cells shutting down. And the idea for me is that my life is like a film reel and at the end it kind of flaps off and it's just that empty white nothingness. And I think that's gonna be great. I'm totally fine with that. And that's what brings me comfort and everybody should be doing, figuring out what brings them comfort with that vision. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> oh. Um, I suppose, you know, the last taboo after uh, drugs and, and talking about how to die, but making um, uh, somehow ideas about how, I, how our loved ones and how the people closest to us might want to see their deaths and experience, well, unfortunately, funerals are left to the people that are alive, mm -hmm. and they are about the people that are still there, rather than the person that has passed away. So um, I've, ex I've had um, 
experience with people that have died suddenly. And um, personally, I can't see any life in them. I, I see a complete sudden step from someone that's alive to basically a, a, a mannequin, whether that be a soul leaving them or something like that, and um, how that relates to marriage traditions and being around the dead person for days and... Um, Sure. So, so you're you're talking about how it feels like to you when you see a dead body, they've left the building. Definitely, they're gone. yeah, yeah. That's that's for me is one of the beauties of it, of a beauties of a, of a wake, um, because I think when somebody dies and you don't get to see them at all, they get taken away immediately. You don't get to experience. Oh, right, they're dead. They're really dead. Experience around people for three days and they've. They've yeah. just gone to me. So, so yeah. having, having a wake, whether it lasts a couple of hours, whether it lasts a couple of days, people will often say that something shifts for them. And it takes a while to be with that dead body for something to shift. And the two things that I had always said that it does are the first thing is that it allows you to reconcile your feelings about this person being dead. You know, I knew my dad was gonna die, and then I saw him for a day and he was just so dead. He was just so very dead, and he's dead now. I have to reevaluate my whole community and my support system because he's very dead. The second thing that it does, it allows you to almost grieve for yourself in this bigger existential, here's a dead body that's looking very dead. I'm gonna die someday. What does that mean? What have I done in my own life to prepare for this? And then I was speaking to a rabbi recently, and he said, I want to add a third thing on top of that. And I said, okay, go on. And he said, the best thing, which is that the third thing that happens is it gives you time to grieve for the people that you didn't get to grieve for and the people who are going to die in the future. And so it gives you time to think about, I never got to see my dad when he died. I never got to see my sister when she died. And this was her as well. This lifeless body was her as well. My children are gonna die someday. What does that mean? So it's almost like this, this little bubble for you to really reflect on death in a broader way beyond just your relationship with the dead body. So when I'm talking about awake, I'm not saying that, you know, some people do believe that the spirit hangs around um, and that they're communing with the dead person. I don't happen to be one of those people they're welcome to that, but I think the fact that the dead person is so dead is part of the grieving process and part of the healing that happens when you're with the dead body. Thank you. Step in the middle here. Oh, hold on. Um, was there, just send a microphone down to this person and in the meantime we'll have yeah, uh, we'll get to this person well. here. So is there another microphone we can take over here for the next question? Yes, do you think, in the meantime, do you think yeah. part of the problem it starts if you're in the hospital and you're dying in the hospital. So there's already the medical establishment kind of taking over the process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Can I absolutely that? do. Yeah, I do. Um, and I think that um, what we've run into trouble a lot of the time, we had a, um, since my business is opened, we've had, um, I shouldn't really call it a business, that implies we're making money. <laughs> um, <laughs> Nonprofits, hooray. Uh, what, um, we found is, is oftentimes there, there was a family that wanted to do this really beautiful thing. It was a really young child that had died and they wanted to take the body home and spend it 
have it stay overnight, and then drive it up north, up the coast, to a cemetery that many members of their family had been buried in. And it was such a beautiful idea, and we're talking to the hospital, and they're just like, what? You know, because the, the child did die in the hospital. And they're like, okay, so, but a funeral director is going to come pick it up, right? And I guess we can't control what you do with the body after that. They're just baffled by it. And what, what's even more surprising to me, I think, Hospitals are a problem because of that bureaucratic system and often, you know, they're not trained to, to really help that much post-mortem. One story that I'll, that I'll tell that was actually my accountant, this happened to her. Her mother died after many weeks in the hospital and when you're, when you're lying down for many weeks unable to move, they often put you on an air mattress because you're less likely to get the big bed sores that develop with blood pooling on a, on a person who's not moving, and so she died there in the hospital, and the nurse says, it's okay, you can spend some time, just sit with the body, and so the family is sitting around the body, and a doctor, who they had never met before, walks in, says, oh, I'm sorry, excuse me, doesn't introduce himself, and goes to the side and starts letting the air out of the bed. And so she said, all of a sudden, my mother is going, Ooh, and like moving up and down. My mother's dead body is jerking around and moving. And she said it was just, you know, just obviously the most horrifying thing that she had ever seen. And that story to me really represents the disconnect of the medical establishments between, and, and this is not to say, there are, there are so many nurses who do a really beautiful job, especially of preparing the body and saying to the family, you can stay as long as you want. But for me, um, that's never gonna be quite the same. Hanging around in the hospital room for a little bit is never gonna be quite the same thing as having, and something that they do in the UK, which I really like, is they have a room in the, sometimes in the basement of the hospital that is just a viewing room, that they'll take the body directly there, and so the family can get out of the medical environment and go straight to, to sit with the body. Um, but what they found in studies is that it's often down a long, leaky, drippy hallway, or it's like back where they're storing things, you know, and so it's like, could you just make a nice room? Like, just a nice room for them to go for a little while so they feel better about this huge, long, protracted, traumatic death. Come on, guys. So yeah, we need people and allies in every part of the system. I think perhaps one more question, which was the one just up there. Hi, I've just got one quick technical question. Just thinking about the formaldehyde that's pumped into the body, what, what volume of formaldehyde is actually used? I'm sorry, I didn't get that. The formaldehyde, how much is actually used in the embalming process? Oh, okay. Um, I knew, so how much formaldehyde is used in the, in the embalming process? Um, I know that it, on a particular body, um, I believe that the ratio, the ratio is much stronger. I had this, I had this in my mind. It was, um, depends on how, what the case was, you know, depends on what they died of. Um, some people, if they're jaundiced or if they had a particular conditions, you'll use a much stronger formaldehyde. If they have already begun to decompose, you'll use a much stronger ratio. Um, I think it's like four parts, it's water and then uh, four parts formaldehyde, I believe. Um, you can... Google it depending on which case it was, and then it's a much, much stronger concentration what goes in the stomach cavity and the thoracic cavity as well. Do we have time for one? Well, yes, it's mm -hmm. one more. I'm just going to keep this going all day. <laughs> if well, that was a nice short question. I could do this question. all day. Keep the death questions <laughs> coming. In the course of your work, mm -hmm. have you developed 
Oh, that's a great question. Um, You've got a minute. <laughs> and a minute. <laughs> My particular perspective is one minute long. Um, no, no. I did a, yes, I absolutely have. Um, I actually did a talk with Matt Vickers yesterday, who was uh, Lucretia's wife, who I guess was a big part of your debate around assisted dying here in New Zealand. Um, I was actually a part and an advocate for the law in California that just passed, which allows for aid in dying. Um, I think it's very important. I could also talk for days about this, but um, what I do believe is that you can't control death. Death is so much is out of our control. So if we have little things that can make us feel centered and that we have some measure of control over this big uncontrollable process, what they found in Oregon, which is just north of California, that it's been legal for a, for a number of years, is that they prescribe life-ending drugs under the right circumstances, but not everyone takes them. In fact, not even, I think, the majority end up taking them. But just knowing that they're there gives such a profound feeling of, I can you know, pull the lever and get out of this if it becomes too awful. I think that's a beautiful thing, and I absolutely want it for myself, and I think people should have the right to choose whether or not they want that. <laughs> I'm like, hi, okay. <laughs> yeah. Storming the gates. <laughs> you should have been able to drive him. That's, that's, yeah, yeah. Soon, soon, if I had it my way, people are going to be driving corpses all over the country. <laughs> the grand future of dead body transport. Thank you so much, everybody. It's really great. Thank you. I just, um, I just, I just, So that you know, Kate.